Great. All right. Revelation 1. So last week we said Revelation was written in the 90s AD, written to seven churches in what's now Turkey. It was Asia Minor at the time. It was written by John the Apostle. John wrote this letter prompted by the Lord, prompted by the Holy Spirit, because the, the situation under the emperor of the time, his name was Domitian, was growing increasingly hostile for Christians. Christians had been persecuted before, absolutely, but under Domitian, persecution was more broad and it was uh, more significant. Not every believer was getting thrown in jail. It wasn't every day, every person, everywhere, but the overall climate was growing more and more hostile to Christianity. And so uh, the Lord prompted John to write this letter to these seven churches to help them know how to navigate this new setting. How do they navigate this new reality that they find themselves in? So when it comes to understanding Revelation, we need to keep several things in mind. We talked about this last week too. First is that it's a letter. It was written to seven historical churches with feet on the ground. It was to be read in their worship service. And so it has to make sense to them. So anything that we say about Revelation, it had to make sense to someone living in Smyrna or Ephesus or Pergamum in 95 AD. It's a historical document. It has, there's a historical reality there. It's also prophetic. It says it's a prophecy. Revelation calls itself a prophecy. And like all Old Testament prophecies, Revelation is written in the same vein. It's written to address a specific situation, usually some type of a crisis. And the, the, the prophecies have a future element. God, through a prophet, is saying to a group of people, hey, y'all are being faithful in difficult circumstances. Your deliverance is coming soon. Or to people who are being unfaithful, to people who are compromising, God would say, hey, you need to straighten up or to people who are his enemies, he would say, I'm coming to judge you soon. So there's this future element where God is talking to the different people who are involved in this crisis. And Revelation has that. It has a future element to it. And we understand those two things because there are other books in the Bible that are similar. The, thing, the place where we get tri tripped up is Revelation's also apocalyptic. Daniel is a little bit. There's a little bit of this in Daniel, but it's foreign to us. Apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic, and it's designed to pull the veil back, to reveal, to disclose what's going on in heaven. So you've got these, these seven churches that have been around for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, maybe at the most, and they're experiencing something they've never experienced before, this level of hostility. And they're probably wondering, where's Jesus? Like, what is happening here? And Revelation is written to pull the curtain back to say, here's what's going on in the supernatural world that you can't see. Here's what God is doing, even if you think what's happening on the ground would indicate either that God is not active or somehow that God is actually losing this battle, that Domitian is the one on the throne. No, Jesus is still on the throne. And here's a glimpse into that reality. And again, that's where we can kind of get tripped up because that's, it's foreign to us. And the, the method of communication through this symbolic language can be foreign to us. So if you strip everything away, all the imagery, all of the metaphor, what is Revelation saying? That God is establishing his kingdom on the earth, his rule and his reign. That God is overthrowing the devil and he's overthrowing evil. That God expects his people to remain faithful to him, even if it means their death. That's clear in Revelation. 
and that in the end, God will win and reward his people and that God will punish his enemies. That's the heart of the message of Revelation. Today, we're gonna look at the rest of chapter one, which is more background and foundation for what's going to follow. So starting in verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So uh, more background, we've got John. He's on this island, Patmos. You can see it there on the screen. He was there in exile. He'd been banished there. So you can think of exile as time out, kind of on a national scale. That's where John was. He was seen as someone who was causing trouble. And so the local government sent him away rather than killing him. There's a legend, nobody knows if it's true, but there's a legend that John was actually dipped in burning hot oil, boiling oil to kill him. It didn't work. So that's why they exiled him because they couldn't kill him. Who knows? But they've removed him from, they think, from influence. The Roman government has put him on this island so he can't influence people, stir up trouble, which means preach the gospel any longer. And John approaches these seven churches, even though he's an apostle and he could be very authoritative, he approaches them much more kind of on their level. He calls himself a brother and a fellow companion. And what he's saying is, you guys are experiencing difficulties and I have too. You guys are experiencing some hostility, so so have I. I. That's why I'm here. I'm here because of my faithfulness to Jesus, just like y'all are suffering, some of you, because of your faithfulness to Jesus. It's a Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. He has a, says he's in the Spirit, so everything that follows is a vision. It's something John saw and something that John heard. It's, it, it'd be kind of like a, maybe you've had a dream where you felt like maybe it was a dream from God. That would be similar to this, what John is experiencing, except he was awake the whole time. And then the, the seven churches, there's nothing magic about the order of those churches. You can see on the screen Ephesus would have made sense to get it first because they were the ones on the coast. And then it's called a circular letter. It just makes a circuit. It just goes from church to church and is read in each congregation um, on, their, uh, on Sunday during their worship service. So the, the three words I want you to hear from that first section are suffering and kingdom and perseverance. Or my translation said patient endurance. Yours may say perseverance. In verse three, we read that blessed are the people who hear the words of this book and, and take it to heart. Do what it says. If you've read Revelation, it's really hard to know, well, what am I supposed to take to heart? And certainly, how, how am I supposed to do any of it? Like, what, I don't understand what it means, much less what it has to do with my life in 2019 in Marietta, Georgia. Those three words, suffering, kingdom, and perseverance, that's, you take that to heart. Those are three things you can take to heart. It's, it's a key to understanding how God wants us to navigate difficult circumstances. That first word, suffering. I don't want to Greek you to death, but it is an important word because there's so much confusion around the timing of events in Revelation or the timing of the events around Jesus's return. And that word suffering is thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. And it's often translated tribulation. It means a pressing together or squeezing it's used in the New Testament to refer to the suffering that we will 
experience because of our faithfulness to Jesus. And there's a school of thought that says before we experience that, before we experience tribulation, we'll be taken up to heaven. It's called the pre-tribulation rapture. You may have heard of that. Now, I said last week, you certainly don't have to agree with me. There are people who love God and, and love the Bible and are smarter than me that have different opinions on Revelation. But I have the microphone, and so I'm going to tell you what I think. And I don't think there's any truth to that at all. I think the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, I can't find any evidence for it in the New Testament. And the thing that makes me nervous, if you hold to that, and it's okay if you do, but what makes me nervous is repeatedly what I do see in the New Testament is a warning that if we don't stand firm to the end, we will not be saved. The positive side of that, Jesus says, the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved. The soil and the parable of the soil, it's a second type of soil is rocky or it's shallow. And what Jesus says about that is those people receive the word with joy. And then when persecution or thalipsis comes, when that word, tribulation, hardship, suffering, thalipsis, when that word comes, they fall away because they don't have roots. And fall away means exactly what you think it means. It makes me super nervous to think that there are people whose plan and hope is, well, when, before things get bad, I'll get taken up to heaven. If your roots, if you're wrong, I don't know that the roots are going to be deep enough for you to stand firm through difficulty and suffering. If I'm wrong, the worst thing that happens is I don't have to suffer. Again, you don't have to agree with me, but I would implore you, make sure your roots are deep. Make sure that you can stand firm until the end. Jesus says in John 16, you will experience the lipsis. You will experience hardship, suffering, tribulation. He says you're, it's a promise. Paul says in Acts 14, 22, it's only through enduring a, um, these thalipses, if we want to make it plural, that we enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't see, any, again, for me, I don't see any New Testament evidence to say we get to avoid that. If you look at church history, the last 2,000 years, all the way back to Acts chapter 8, we have Christians being martyred for their faith and Christians being persecuted and suffering for their faith. And it continues to happen up until today and to somehow think that we're going to be exempt from that. It's arrogant, honestly. And I think it's wishful thinking. And so I would say without trying to make anybody feel heavy or scared at all, develop deep roots. You want to be able to stand firm to the end. The worst thing that happens is you won't have to but you'll be ready if you do. The kingdom, the, the rule and reign of God, this is where tension comes in. We hear this word suffering or hardship or tribulation. That's what these churches are experiencing on the ground. And yet they know Jesus has died and risen from the grave. They know that Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death. And yet their reality is it's not Jesus on the throne, it's Domitian and he is crushing the church. And so it creates this tension in their lives and in their hearts. How are they supposed to live with the, the, what they know to be true? Jesus is the king and what they're experiencing on the ground, the church is being persecuted. And what John says is that that calls for patient endurance. That calls for 
perseverance, the capacity to bear up under difficult circumstances. That's what God wants. That's how he expects us to navigate that tension. Not to run away, not to hide, not to despair, not to deny, but to stand firm. And you don't have to do that on your own. Paul says it's God who makes us stand firm. You ask him for the grace to stand firm in the midst of that tension between the the suffering and the kingdom. We live in both of those realities. And you, if you look back, just probably at the last week is probably as far back as you have to go in your own life to say, yes, I've experienced the suffering of living in a fallen world. And I've experienced the blessings of the breaking in of the kingdom of God in my life, of his rule and reign. Patient endurance is what's called for. Perseverance. Those three words, take those words to heart. Live those words out. So John hears a voice. And this voice tells him to write what he sees and what he hears to these seven churches. So he turns around to see the voice that was speaking. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what's about to happen is Jesus is going to give a very direct message to each one of those seven churches. Some encouragement and some correction, but a very direct, very clear, very strong message to each one of them. And then throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus is judging all of the earth. I don't mean kind of sitting on a bench with a gavel. I mean executing the judgments of God on the earth. But before any of that happens, we get this picture of who he is. We have him walking among the lampstands. He says the lampstands are these seven churches. You're the light of the world, that verse from Matthew 5. And he says he's got seven stars, and he's saying that the stars are the angels of the churches. And what does that mean? It could mean, some people think it means the pastors of the churches, the human leaders, and other people say, no, the church has, actually has guardian angels. Matthew 18 talks about people having guardian angels. doesn't necessarily matter to me one way or the other. I think it's angels. But the picture that I love is the fact that they're all held in his hand, and it reminds me of that passage in John 10 that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And so even as we read Revelation, and it's, again, it seems very volatile to, to know that Jesus doesn't lose any of us who are his. So we have this picture of Jesus walking among the churches. And this picture, remember, is highly symbolic, but our temptation is to do that. Those people may be wonderful, but those pictures are awful. They are. Jesus does not look like Kenny Rogers in that middle (laughs) picture. And I don't even know what the one on the far right is. Medusa 
come here. I don't. That's our. That's what we do. We read something that's symbolic, and we want to smack it down on a sheet of paper and make Jesus flat. Don't do that. That's not the point. Don't draw the picture. You want to say what do these phrases communicate about who Jesus is? And they're deep and they're rich and there's all kinds of Old Testament connections to them. That's not the answer for us as we read through Revelation. It's not to draw a picture from the imagery that's being described. It's to say what is being communicated through those images. And the two that are the most important for me in this picture of Jesus are the first two. One like a son of man and one dressed in a robe with a gold sash around his chest. One like a son of man that ties into Daniel 7, 13 and 14 where Daniel sees a vision of the throne room. And he sees the father, the ancient of days on the throne. And then he sees one quote like a son of man approach the throne, and that one is given authority over all the nations of the earth. Authority and dominion over all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth. That's Jesus. And so here we have Jesus representing, again, this, this one who's been given authority. He's about to start making some judgments, and he has the right to do so. And that can, almost, that can be scary when you think of, we just both sang that song. He rules without or reigns without contention. No one can rival him. And if you don't know the character of that one who has that level of power and that level of authority, that can be really scary. But this one, this king of the nations is dressed like a priest. Every six out of seven times in the Old Testament that that word for robe is used, it's used to describe the clothes that the high priest wears. So how about that? The king who judges the nations is the priest who lives to make intercession for his people. Hold those two things together. This one who's been given all of this power, this one that nobody can check, this one who against nobody can contend with him, He's become a man. And he didn't just offer bulls and goats and sheep. He offered himself to make atonement for us with the Father. You can trust him. You can trust him. You don't have to be scared about Jesus as the judge because your judge is also your advocate. The one who is determining is also the one who defends. He is the son of man, and he's dressed as a high priest. And those other phrases, you can look at those, and there's some scripture there up on the screen. We don't have time to look at all of it this morning. But it's what you think. White hair for wisdom and blazing eyes for being able to judge rightly. He can see through. Nobody fools him. His judgments are just. His the, the, the sword that comes out of his mouth is his word. And you can, again, you can see those in, in the picture there. It's taken from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 is where most of those images come from. But it, it, to me, it, it's meant to say, here's the one. Remember, John had spent three years with Jesus. He'd seen Jesus' resurrection body. He'd been on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He'd seen him glorified to some extent, but he's never seen Jesus like this. And his response is to fall down as if he's dead at Jesus' feet. I think all of that, that whole picture 
Again, it's just to provide comfort and reassurance, for lack of a better word, that this one who we're about to see executing judgment over all the nations, he has a right to do so. He's the one like this son of man. And he does so from a place of grace and a place of mercy and a place of compassion. He's a great high priest who knows what it's like to be us. He's been tempted like us in every way except he's never sinned. And again, hopefully that's an encouragement and a comfort to you. I want to close with those four words that Jesus says to John, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's a common response when people get a glimpse of who God is, is they fall down at his feet. And throughout the Bible, you can see God saying to people, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear is a huge concept. We can't dive into all of it today, but just a couple of handholds. In the Bible, two, two uh, approaches to fear. We're commanded to fear God. And that fear is not to be terrified of God. It's to revere him, uh, to be in awe of him. That's a command. Genesis to Revelation, fear God. And we're also told not to fear anything else. You don't fear death. You don't fear your enemies. You don't fear the future. You don't feel, fear consequences of obedience. We don't fear anything except God. We're not terrified of anything because we revere God. As our fear for God increases, our fear of other things decreases. We have reverence for him. We're not scared of anything else. Those are the two ways we're approaching fear in the Bible. Let me give you a story that you know well to remind you. Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him in a boat one night, and he stays back to pray, and then a storm whips up on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples get nervous, and Jesus walks out to them on water. And they get scared when they see him. They think he's a ghost. What else would they think? They think he's a ghost, and they're terrified, Matthew says. This is in Matthew 14. And, and Jesus says, don't worry, it's me, calm down. And Peter says, well, if it's you, call me out. Call me out on the water. Tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out and begins to walk. And in your mind, like, this is not the gulf, nice and flat. The storm is still raging. The winds don't stop until they get back in the boat. Peter is not walking on a calm sea. He's walking on waves to Jesus. And everything's going okay until this really interesting phrase Matthew says, Peter saw the wind. How do you see the wind? Peter saw the wind, and then he gets scared, and he starts to sink. And he cries out to Jesus, and Jesus rescues him. You have little faith, why'd you doubt? And they get back in the boat, and Jesus calms the storm. The move there that you can see for Peter, it's, it, everything's about what he's looking at. When he thinks he's seeing a ghost, he's scared. When he realizes it's Jesus, he's confident. And then when he sees the wind, takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. And that's how fear works. I'm not talking about fear of snakes and fear of spiders and fear of storms. Those things are all, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the things that actually keep you up at night. Where for many of us, what we see is the wind. It's nebulous, it's ambiguous, it's hypothetical. It's all of these what-if scenarios that we're playing out in our minds. And the one thing they all have in common is we can't control them. And that's what makes us nervous. And that's what opens the door to fear in our life. We reach the edge of what we can control. We reach the limits of our ability to manage. And everything outside of that limit, that unknown, 
we see that we're looking at the wind. It has no shape. It has no form. It really doesn't even have a whole lot of substance. But it's enough to get our eyes off of Jesus. And then we begin to sink. Unfortunately for most of us, our knee-jerk reaction when we sink is not to say, Jesus, help me. It's to try to figure out how long we can tread water. I'm wondering who this morning is drowning. Not in every area of your life, but you're seeing the wind. You're seeing the wind in your finances. You're 12 years from retirement and you're going, I don't, I don't have enough. You're seeing the wind in your relationships. You're a phony or you're, you're afraid people are going to find out that you're a fraud. If they really knew who I was, they'd all leave and I'd be left alone. Maybe it's you're looking at the waves when it comes, or the wind when it comes to your health. You're playing out all of these scenarios. What if they can't help me? What if they can't figure it out? What if I have to be this way for the rest of my life? Are you looking at the wind and have you taken your eyes off of Jesus? The response is not to shut your eyes real tight and try to visualize Jesus. It's to acknowledge, and this is, uh, I'm struggling. I'm looking at the wind. And I want to be looking at you and I need grace to do that. I want to keep my eyes fixed on you. Like Peter, Peter is a one-time deal. I don't know how long the whole scene lasted. For us, it's not a one-time thing. It's a regular occurrence for most of us. Fear is constantly looking for handholds in our hearts and in our minds, and we have to be vigilant and diligent in keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. And so the way I want us to close is to, I want us to pray. So if you would, this would be kind of an extended prayer. So follow along with me if you're willing, and then we'll give you an opportunity to um, receive some ministry and to worship. So if you're willing to pray, pray this prayer. God, would you search me and would you know me and would you show me my anxious thoughts? Show me my anxious thoughts. Anxious thoughts can be a doorway to fear. It's not going to be in every area of your life. So whatever came to mind, I would encourage you not not to fight that and certainly don't justify it. Just acknowledge it before the Lord. God, this is an area where I do experience anxiety and fear. And I confess that to you. So don't hear this as condemnation, but every place where fear takes root in your heart, it's actually a relational deficiency. As your level of trust in the Lord increases, your level of fear in those areas of your life decreases. That's why we fear God and we don't fear anything else. So don't hear that as condemnation. It's just a reality that may help you process moving forward. So the goal is not to not be afraid. The goal is to trust at a greater level. If we're, if we're trying to not be afraid, we're still looking at the wind. We want to be looking at Jesus. So you just pray that and ask for grace. 
Holy Spirit, I need help to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. I confess my eyes are prone to wander. I see the wind. I see the wind. When I visit the doctor, when I get my bank statement at the end of the month, when I think about my kids turning 16 and wondering what in the world that means for them, I see the wind. Holy Spirit, would you help me keep my eyes fixed on Jesus? I don't want to be a slave to fear. I don't want to be driven by fear. I want to be led by your Holy Spirit. So two, two ways, let me say this, and then I'll give you two ways to respond. So don't necessarily think about your actions. The same action can be motivated by wisdom or by fear. And so it's not enough just to think about your behaviors and whether your behaviors need to change. What you want to do is, is expose your heart to the Lord and ask him to deal with your motivation. Nothing may change externally, but your reason why will change. You won't, again, be driven by fear. You'll be led by the Spirit. So try not to focus on your behaviors, but on your heart and your motivation. And that's why we need the Lord to show us that. A lot of times we don't even know our own hearts. And so that's why we pray, search us, show us our anxious thoughts. So two ways you can respond. One, if, if something came to your mind, an area where fear has a grip on you, let us pray that God would deliver you and set you free and that you would walk in freedom moving forward. The second thing, we didn't talk about this at all, but Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the keys or has authority over death and Hades. And I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who would say, there's an area of my life that's dead and I sure would like to see it revived. You may not even be sure if that's what God wants to do, but why don't you give him a chance this morning? If Jesus holds the keys, he has authority over death. If he's the first and the last, so he's in control of everything. If he's the living one, he's overcome the greatest enemy, death, you, you can trust him. Ask him to breathe life into that thing in you that's died, that dream, that relationship, whatever it is. We want to pray with you about that as well. So Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts and move in our circumstances? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand. Bo's going to lead us in worship. We'll have about five minutes and then he'll dismiss us. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front and we'd love for you to respond as you feel led. Thanks. Thanks.